Marine Rescue Coordination Centre, Shannon. Uh, please uh, go ahead, your uh, name and phone number and the details of your emergency. Never a day or a night goes by without that terse telephone response from the Marine Rescue Coordination Centre at Shannon. Last year, 1,500 calls for assistance were logged, and any of these calls may be a prelude to an ocean drama. The Rescue Centre assesses the situation and, as the need demands, calls out aircraft, helicopters and lifeboats for immediate action. Righto, Thomas, let go aft. OK, Robert, let go for it. All clear. Go ahead. Hello, Captain White, operations. Yes, okay, that's uh, an injured climber in uh, Glendalock. Uh, possible broken leg, uh, request from MRCC for uh, immediate SAR call out. Roger, uh, we'll uh, get back to you on that to confirm. Thank you, goodbye. At Casement Aerodrome in Baldonnell, the Air Corps prepares for an emergency operation. The Coordination Centre for Ireland's Rescue Services is at Shannon Airport. The overall responsibility lies with the Department of Communications in Dublin, where Peter Lenehan is Director of Air Traffic Services. Well, it has a number of facilities, and the major ones would include lifeboats of the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. The Irish Air Corps have a range of helicopters and fixed-wing reconnaissance aircraft. The Irish Naval Service ships, they are corvettes. We would also utilise United Kingdom, Royal Navy and Royal Air Force helicopters and again fixed-wing aircraft. Depending on the circumstances, we would use trawlers, fishing boats. We would also use merchant ships. Then, again, depending on the circumstances of the situation, we would use our coast life-saving service of this uh, department. They have a number of units around the country. The area has been defined by international agreement. It is called a rescue region. And Ireland's region extends roughly to a point about 250 miles west of the Irish coast to about 60 miles south of the south southern coast of Ireland, then halfway is between Ireland and England up the Irish Sea and around Donegal. In all, it is approximately 60,000 square miles. There's a yacht down off the Skelligs. He hasn't requested any assistance, but the wind is pretty strong. Yeah. And uh, he's not making any headway as such. So Village Lifeboat are going to go out to him. They should be in the water shortly. And he's steering to meet them. So there's, there's no great problem. He's not in any immediate difficulty, but he's not making any headway. The wind is up to 63 knots. Well, there you are. I've just seen that inside. They're forecasting it heavy So with the wind being so high... He's in danger now at 63 well, knots. Well, at 63 yeah. knots, he could be in danger as such. It would be better if we got assistance to him. He'll get in pretty slowly himself, but we'll speed it up if possible. The nerve centre of rescue operations at Shannon is manned by air traffic controllers day and night. But why was a decision made to base the rescue coordination centre at Shannon? Joe Kearns is in charge of operations on the spot. To explain that now rather specifically, 
why, in my estimation at least, why it was uh, installed here in the first place was that in the early days of aviation, that is when the International Civil Aviation Organization was formed, the responsibility for, sea re uh, for air rescue was vested in the air traffic control centers. And it was the position, and still is indeed, that the air traffic control service here at Shannon is responsible for air search and rescue within specific coordinates. So it was felt that maybe it might be a better idea to have the two services, that's the Marine Rescue Coordination Service and the Search and Rescue Services for Aircraft amalgamated into the one service. I think, if I say so myself, and I think that's recognised generally, that this decision ha has been a wise one. Because, as you can quite well imagine, the two functions are more or less of the same nature. And as a consequence, air traffic controllers have the background and the experience, and indeed uh, they have the, 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 the potential to take decisions without being inhibited. And I think this has worked. I think our record has shown that this uh, has worked over those years. He's down off the Great Skellig Lighthouse. And how far would the lifeboat be? The lifeboat would be, say, 30 miles away from less than 30 miles. Should be with him in about an hour or thereabouts. We're involved in such a diverse number of t our types of operation, as I've told you. Uh, we have the authority even to invoke a major uh, accident plan, should that be required. There was an occasion there some years ago, not so terribly long ago, actually, that um, uh, one of those oil rigs was being towed in, ran into heavy winds and broke from its moorings, or broke from the tug, the lines to the tug, it broke, and it was drifting onto the Kerry coast. And it was a very dangerous hazard. Now, the prerogative rested here, too, to advise the local superintendent of the guards of the possibility of potentially, at least, having to introduce the major uh, accident plan, which is a comprehensive plan to deal with uh, Emergencies of a, a large nature. Uh, people, I'm sure, don't feel that those services are there. But those contingencies are always, you know, there's always some people, there's always organisations to deal with that type of serious emergency, such should it happen. When there's an emergency at sea, who goes out? Very often the need is for aircraft and helicopters, but usually it's the nearest lifeboat. In County Dublin, the Hoth lifeboat is now the most modern and best equipped around our coasts. It cost half a million pounds and Jerry McGuinness is the coxswain. Assemble the crew, we put the maroons up and within five or six minutes uh, the boats at sea. And where do all your crew come from? Well, they all live within a half-mile radius of the station. So how long did it take to get here to the, to the lifeboat? As I said, uh, five to six minutes, the boat be at sea. And is the boat in the water permanently? Yes, the boat's moored here in, in the harbour. 
All the lifeboat crews around our coasts get to their boat at speed. But the new host lifeboat is something very special. It's completely different from our previous boat, but there's uh, six of our class in Ireland at the moment. Uh, she has a speed of 18.5 knots as against 8.5 knots with our previous boat. So you can see the difference in speed, and speed is of the essence. And she seems to be more highly equipped than any other boat. Well, she hasn't that much more uh, equipment than our previous boat, but uh, it's, as you see, it, it, it's in a... In, it's all spaced out uh, so that each person on board a boat has a special job to do. And it's not as uh, hard on, on the coxswain or the second coxswain as the previous boat, where there was only the two people were uh, working on the equipment. So what would be the longest time you might be at sea in this boat? Well, she has fuel for uh, 12 hours at full throttle which, uh, like, if you're in a search situation, you'll be down to half throttle or, or a little less at times, and that would uh, give you 20 or 24 hours. Very often, the alert about a vessel in distress may come not from Shannon nor from the Air Corps, but from one of the country's lighthouse keepers. Jimmy Cullen is on duty at the Bailey Lighthouse at Hoth. I don't think there's any lighthouse on the coast that hasn't had an incident uh, very close. I suppose um, Mr Hockey off Mizzen Head last year where they could actually see the, the boat in trouble, but yes, it was, the, the sea was so rough and the, the rocks were so acute, nobody could get to them. They could see the incident, but um, they could only keep in contact, visual and um, speaking contact with them until Baltimore Lifeboat came to their assistance. I'm on my fourth year at Bailey now. I'm, I'm 17 years in the service altogether. Um, which is the lightkeepers are transferred periodically, uh, roughly around five years at each station. Um, I've been six years at Hook Point, seven years over in Eagle Island, County Mayo, and now at Bailey. So you've had a wide experience of what goes on around the coast. Well, all, all lightkeepers have, have a wide experience, and, and the, the, the greatest asset is, of course, local knowledge. Um, it, it, marine rescue are a very, very important uh, body, as, as all the radio stations are, but it's um, the local knowledge of what happens within your area and to know the different tides and the weather pertaining at the time, which is of great help to uh, the rescue services. The lighthouses, for instance, of the Commissioner of Irish Lights give us valuable assistance in certain inshore situations. The Department of Communications also has two coast radio stations. They are situated at uh, Valencia Island in County Kerry, and uh, Mallon Head in Donegal. Uh, they are staffed 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And uh, many messages, distress messages from ships at sea, are relayed through these two stations. Uh, additionally, the, uh, they would broadcast, for instance, uh, navigation warnings to shipping, gale warnings, and such like. Peter Lenehan at the Department of Communications. Just like the staffs at Shannon or the Air Corps at Casement Aerodrome, the men in the lighthouses are on the same 24-hour alert. You're on uh, two four-hour watches within a 24-hour period. You do a month-on, month-off duty period. And um, you're, you're on watch uh, right around the clock. I'm on 10 to 2 watch at the moment. Uh, I'll be relieved at 2 o'clock. Next man on from 2 to 6 and... 
third man on line from six to ten, right around the clock, twelve months a year. It's 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 more to do with weather rather than than um, within just the twenty-four hour period um, that you're on watch. Um, if the weather is bad, naturally enough, um, people tend to get into more difficulty. If uh, the weather's foggy and your your visibility is way down and you small craft out without radar, well, they would be using your fog signal facility and also, of course, the light is on when when the when you're in fog. So you you couldn't pin it down to a particularly uh, busy time or not. Um, the Bailey now would be slightly different than other stations, as we're the central station for all the coast, and all messages to um, to the coast go to and from the Bailey, be it from the office or the depot or whatever. Um, we 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 have call times eight o'clock, eleven o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, and we can get a message to any station in the coast within a matter of five minutes. Lighthouse man Jimmy Cullen. Like the lighthouse keepers, the lifeboat men are always standing by. We have seven on board, but we have a panel of about 20 people. And how long have they been with the service? Well, they can range. Some just joined this year and some 10 or 12 or 14 years in the service. I'm over 30 years in the service. And what many people don't realise, of course, is the fact that you, you were all voluntary... Yeah, yes, there's one paid person on each lifeboat for the, the maintenance of the boat and the, uh, the keeping it clean and that. And the rest give the service. The rest give the service voluntarily. What is it like to be on board a ship in distress and to have the lifeboat come to your rescue? John Ryan, author, broadcaster and yachtsman, was sailing his yacht the Southern Cross off the Kish when he and his crew ran into a freak storm and found themselves battling against an angry sea. When we went around on the next tack, the mast just went off like a... It was honestly like a Bofors gun, the noise of it crashing, and it just broke into and fell right down onto the cockpit where the four of us were, who were the crew, myself and the crew, and it missed one man by about an inch. I thought he was dead, actually, because it must have been travelling at about 200 miles an hour then and weighing at least a half a tonne. And uh, in the middle of all this confusion, uh, and, of course, anything like the wire, the rigging that fell on top of us, I believe we looked like an inner spring mattress that had suddenly exploded out at sea. But meanwhile, one of the crew very decently uh, had started the engine. He worked very hard and it was absolutely ringing wet, but he managed to get it going. So now the inner spring mattress looked as if it was on fire. It was like something you'd see out on the ring's end dump. But at all events, we had the engine going and uh, looked up and to my astonishment, there was the Holt lifeboat about 50 yards away. She must have seen us from the shore or else somebody told the whole thing because we were about three or four miles away. You sent no signals. We sent no signals because we actually didn't want to to be rescued because there was always the probability that if you were thus rescued, the crew of the life, not the Lifeboat Institute, but the crew itself could put a claim against you for, for salvage. And we felt, well, once we could make our, our own way and we had this engine going that uh, the prudent thing would be to decline the offer, which we did. And, uh, but what impressed me most was the speed and the efficiency with which that lifeboat came. 
We've got a call from MRCC now to say that there's an injured climber has been reported fallen in Glendalough someplace. We don't know his exact position, but we hope to get further information, and uh, we're getting airborne straight away. Attention SAR crew, scramble, dry SAR, Glendalough. Calls that reach the Air Corps at Casement Aerodrome at Baldonnell. May someone cruise to a rescue mission on land or at sea? We were on a simulated rescue mission in an Alouette helicopter of the Air Corps. It was piloted by Commandant Fergus Warner. And during the mission, Airman Tony Marr was lowered on a cable by the winchman, Sergeant John Manning. We practice so often that it becomes more or less second nature to us. We don't actually think about the overall picture. We are concentrating on getting the job done. But um, all the time we have to take into consideration the sea state and the rise and fall of the deck of the vessel and any obstructions in the area like uh, masts and wires on and around the deck. And as Tony will tell you, when he's on the deck, he's got to watch that where he's positioned gives him enough scope to A, work on the casualty and B, actually be lifted off the, gra- the, the deck of the vessel. These winching operations to rescue an injured climber or a yachtsman or sailor from a sinking vessel can be extremely hazardous, especially for the man who goes down on the cable, like airman Tony Marr. If John doesn't put me down in a, a certain position on the board and if I'm to be lifted off, if I haven't got room, if the board was to veer left or right and he was winching me up, I could swing into the mast or something, so I totally rely on John to put me in an exact spot on the board with maximum room to exactly do what I want to do. Because if he doesn't, you know, I, not only could I, I get injured, but you know what I mean, you could get the actual winch caught up in, in masts, you know, and you could nearly bring down the chopper as well, so definitely everyone has to rely on each other. Each sort of job has its own little difficulties and highlights at the time, but... Um one of the hardest jobs performed uh, by anybody in the squadron, I reckon, was the job carried out on Muckish some years ago, where the actual rescue took place at night and involved two helicopters. And one helicopter did the actual winching, and the other helicopter hovered away from the rock face and focused its landing light on the scene to light up the area for the other machine. And as the winchman arrived on the ledge with the casualty, the ledge started to crumble away and they both literally fell from the ledge and swung out below the aircraft. And it was just by the skin of his teeth that the winchman managed to get the, uh, the casualty into the strop and safely on board the aircraft. Commandant Fergus Warner is in charge of one of the squadrons in the helicopter wing of the Air Corps. We've just almost completed over uh, 1,000 rescue missions in all. It's very hard to single out one particular rescue above the rest. But in fact, this unit... Uh, in the Defence Forces has more Distinguished Service Medals to its credit than any other. So therefore there have been a number of uh, very uh, difficult rescues where the crews have been decorated for their efforts. We work very closely through MRCC on an actual rescue mission Um, and operationally we work with the RNLI, the lifeboat people, the various mountain rescue teams around the country, and there are many, And we're very happy to say that we have very close relationships with these, which we're interested in cultivating, as we find it a very useful form of training. And the training, of course, is 
of ultimate use in an operational scenario when someone is actually in trouble. When the helicopters of the Air Corps go out on a rescue mission, they sometimes need what is described as top cover. That cover can be provided by the Irish Air Corps. We have the Fishery Patrol Beechcraft 200 series. They provide top cover when we have to operate offshore, as we call it. Normally, the Alouette 3 is restricted to within three miles of the coastline. However, there have been many occasions where we've been obliged to travel further out to sea in the interest of saving human life. When we do this, we require top cover for safety, in that being a single-engined aircraft, should anything happen to us, uh, we want to have assistance on the scene. And also they provide valuable help in being able to locate the actual search part of the mission is very well done by a fixed-wing aircraft, such as a Beechcraft. Uh, That saves us much time, and when we get to the scene, we can have the... Uh, survivor or the vessel or whatever it may be actually located for us already so that when we arrive all we have to do is carry out the lift itself. The helicopters, the beechcraft, the lifeboats all are known to the MRCC officers based at the Department of Communications in Dublin. Rex Crinian. These helicopters would come from from Casement or Baldonnel at the moment and uh, if for our Irish helicopters, if the incident is outside a certain distance, they are uh, over sea, they're not able, over the water, they're not able to go to the scene of the incident. They are limited. That was the Alouette helicopters at the moment. But we're very pleased to see that the Air Corps now are in the process of re-equipping with the new French uh, uh, Dauphin helicopters, and they have the capability, which the Alouette did not have, was to do night flying and this automatic hover, which is essential to be able to do at night time. That's why uh, at night time, and as an incident, as I mentioned, there was a trawler on the rocks down here off Cork, and there were a number of the crew were on the rocks, but there was no way to get them off. Our helicopters, our own helicopters, were unable to get there at night time because they had not got this uh, automatic hover capability. And besides, the weather was outside their terms of operation. We had to seek assistance from the UK to send in a seeking helicopter that would help them to uh, rescue the people on the rocks. But when a helicopter goes over the water, any distance to sea and out over the water, it is necessary to have an aircraft, a fixed-wing aircraft above, and we call this a top cover. And the pop- purpose of this top cover is to provide safety for the helicopter because normally he is down very near the surface of the sea and as transmissions on VHF is a line of sight, his range is very short so therefore uh, he cannot relay his information directly back. So the aircraft that's up above can do the relay of information but it's also in the event of anything happening to the helicopter going in to the water himself and having an emergency you wouldn't know because you'd not be able to get the information from him, whereas he's been observed by the aircraft on top. So it's a double purpose for an aircraft on top. It's safety for the helicopter and also to act as a relay. So, as Rex Crinian says, because of the limitations of the Alouette helicopters, sometimes the Marine Rescue Coordination Centre has to call on the Royal Air Force. Flight Lieutenant Tony Gear is stationed at Brodie in South Wales. Basically, the, the call starts from Shannon Rescue Coordination Centre, They'll ask our Rescue Coordination Centre in Plymouth 
to um, instruct us to come to Ireland or pass there. And we were, we're already here 24 hours a day, and, we're, and during the daylight hours, we're on a 15-minute standby, and at night, we, we sleep on the flight, and we get down to 45-minute standby. So basically, we're always here and ready to go. When the call does come to Brody and the Seeking helicopters take off, how do they locate the vessel that's in distress? First of all, we're, we're usually given a fairly good position uh, by Shannon Rescue Coordination Centre. We also have a radar on board which can uh, pick out boats up to 50 miles away in any direction around the aircraft. And uh, the, the third way is uh, we'll ha- we could have an RAF Nimrod aircraft flying over top of the survivor and uh, directing us into the uh, ship. Now, how often would you have a Nimrod uh, giving you top cover? Well, if, it, it tends to be if the ship's more than about uh, 50 miles off the coast, we'll have a Nimrod out to it uh, because it also uh, safeguards us and gives us a, uh, a listening watch. At least someone's talking to us while we're flying out to them. In case we have a problem, then we can transmit it to the Nimrod and they can pass it back to the Rescue Coordination Centre. Looking at the large-scale maps in the Marine Rescue Coordination Centres in Dublin or at Shannon, you get an idea of the vast area that's involved. The uh, map indicates the limits of the uh, airspace that is allocated to Ireland by international convention, to the International Civil Aviation Organisation, and we are a member of that particular organisation. The IMO, the International Marine Maritime Organisation, they have suggested that these airspaces would also be similar for marine search and rescue purposes. So we still, our rescue region is a similar region for air and marine purposes. And looking at that region, the area to the west of Ireland uh, looks very large indeed, in fact larger than, than this country itself. Yes, that is correct. We have a large uh, amount of space uh, in that direction to facilitate the uh, air traffic that is coming into Europe over Ireland and is, is necessary for the marshalling of this traffic through this airspace. Therefore, we require this amount of airspace to the west of us. So um, what area would we be talking about in, 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 in size? Well, you're talking altogether, the whole size, you're talking in the order of uh, 90,000 square miles, of which, say, about 30 of it would be uh, uh, land the 60,000 square miles would be over the water and high seas. When we arrive at the area, uh, we'll first of all assess the... Well, well, if we start from basics, I mean, if it's at night, we'd have to get down to the correct height. So we have, to have, we have an automatic system which assists us in getting down to, uh, the, uh, down to, say, 50 feet over the water because it's very dangerous to, to do it um, just by using sight because there's nothing to see when it's black. Uh, once we get down there, we then assess the situation. Uh, the, the captain of the aircraft will look at the situation as well as the, the man who operates the, the uh, wire to put the winchman over the side. And uh, once we've had a discussion on how we're going to do it, we'll then carry out, out the uh, type of uh, lift we're going to do. When the 54,000-tonne grain carrier Kowloon Bridge went on the rocks off West Cork, it was Flight Lieutenant Tony Gear and the Sea Kings who came to the rescue. For luckily for, for Shannon, we had two aircraft at Cork at the time. We were, we were going out to uh, pick up some people off a Spanish trawler, but in the end, that, that wasn't anything. So we were sitting on the ground, waiting to be called back to Brody, 
and uh, this call came through to, to uplift 28 people off of um, the Cullen Bridge. Uh, we had two aircraft go out there. The first one arrived, um, in fact, the second one arrived five minutes after the first one. So the second one was flying around, watching the first one do his first lift of 14 people. And then I came in with the second aircraft and did the second 14 people. Uh, the only injury we had was from my winchman, who uh, managed to damage his hand uh, as we were moving in for the, for, for the, to put the winchman onto the deck. The boat came up and uh, he hit the side of the boat. The wind was uh, a lot stronger than I'm used to flying in anyway, the other pilot. Uh, we, were, we were getting gusts up to 75 knots over the deck. And the, the spray from the seas was, was coming over the deck as well at a tremendous speed. Uh, and the aircraft um, would not sit still over the deck. Normally, the, the Sea King is a very stable airplane. But in this case, the, uh, because of the gusting, the gusting effect, the aircraft was bouncing all over the place. Whenever the Sea Kings or the Alouettes or the top cover aircraft are called out on rescue missions, who counts the cost? Rex Crinion of Air Traffic Services. Normally, the, uh, the top cover would be provided by uh, Nimrod aircraft that are four-engine jet aircraft and they would cost in the region of £12,000 per hour of operation plus and uh, the helicopter itself would be somewhere in the region of £8,000 an hour so if you're involved in for a helicopter to come from the UK which would be located in Brody in South Wales it would take them approximately one hour to get to an incident without remaining in the area to effect a rescue. So you're talking about one hour uh, to the incident, one hour back, and say a half an hour involved with the incident, two and a half hours. So you're talking about uh, £17,000 worth the cost of the helicopter without the top cover. In recent years, the Marine Coordination Rescue Centre has had to tackle some major disasters, one of the biggest with the explosion at the Widdy Oil Terminal. Joe Cairns at Shannon remembers that night. On that particular night, uh, one of the biggest difficulties, uh, we got uh, two British Royal Air Force helicopters. It was a bad night as well, and uh, the position was where we were going to land them. Now, we didn't think as to what function they'd perform. It was only just in case that there was still a possibility that life existed somewhere, that got out to boats or craft of some form. Now... um, we had to land them in Bantry. So what we did on that night, at least what the controllers did, I wasn't here at the specific time, I was here shortly afterwards, but uh, they got uh, as many guard cars as possible to take up position in a field near Bantry and to put on their headlights. And uh, the first helicopter picked it up and he relayed it back to the second one and he picked it up subsequently in the landed. By far the most terrifying and tragic incident in recent years was the loss of the Air India jumbo jet in the seas off our southwest coast. On that occasion, it was an Irish naval officer, Lieutenant Commander Jim Robinson, who was in charge of the initial operations. He was decorated for his services with the Distinguished Service Medal. It was um, a Sunday morning, 23rd of June in '85, at uh, just before 9 o'clock. Uh, we were in the process of arresting a, a trawler we were 66 miles west of the Fastnet Rock. And uh, over the VHF, we picked up uh, an air alert, which just told us that an aircraft had gone missing from radar screens. Uh, it gave a position. So we left our boarding party on the, uh, the trawler to make their own way to Castletown Bear and headed west. Uh, the position given to us was uh, 124 miles to the west of the Fastnet. 
As we approached the scene, uh, the messages started to come through that in fact it was a jumbo, which gave us some indication of what was in store for us. Um, shortly after 11 o'clock, we had uh, communications with the, an our Royal Air Force Nimrod aircraft. And at uh, quarter to 12, we were in contact with a merchant vessel which was on the scene. The, um, we sighted the first wreckage at about noon when the Nimrod drops dropped smoke, smoke floats over the scene and uh, we headed for that. Initially, we began looking for survivors and at approximately 20 past 12, uh, I reckon there weren't going to be any, so we started recovering bodies and the first bodies came on board at about uh, half past 12. That particular uh, incident, which was uh, uh, concerned a jumbo aircraft of Air India, and it came down in what we regard as uh, a marginal area between uh, the Irish air, uh, area of control and the UK area of control. When it was established by the radar controller at, at the point where he saw the uh, signal that indicated the position of the aircraft, and that position that the radar controller established was accurate within hundreds of feet when it was eventually found, the wreckage was eventually found, that the position that the radar controller had obtained was highly accurate indeed. It was then discovered that the, ve uh, that the aircraft had gone down something in the order of 106 miles southwest of the Irish coast. And uh, a large-scale coordination exercise took place between Shannon and the UK Rescue Coordination Centre, which was an air incident. This was an air incident. There is a difference between an RCC and an MRCC. An RCC is a rescue coordination centre that deals with air incidences. The MRCC deals specifically with marine incidences. But the RCC would liaise with the uh, MRCC staff in Shannon, as this was now also uh, a marine incident as well. And uh, they brought in the resources available to the uh, RCC in Plymouth, who uh, took over the control of the uh, total incident here, and they brought in a lot of helicopters, and they went on the search area, and it was the helicopters that determined the accuracy of the position because they picked up the uh, actual marker uh, beacon that was apparently ejected from the aircraft and it went down in the water, and they picked up the actual marker beacon, which gave the, the position determined by the radar controller to be highly accurate. And uh, had there been um, people survived the, uh, the accident, there was a good chance they would have been rescued. But as we know, there were no survivors. And uh, the whole of that exercise then, the unseen commander, you have to appoint an unseen commander, and that is normally done in coordination between, as it happened between the Shannon uh, controller at the time and the RCC controller. And we happened to have in the area the uh, Irish naval vessel, the AFA, and he took over, uh, she took over the unseen commander, and she'd done all the coordination. She was there for the whole week, and she coordinated the whole thing between the helicopters and the overhead aircraft that were involved in the search. At 12, when we started the search, there was only one, the Laurentian Forest, uh, a very large merchant vessel. She was uh, attempting to launch a, a boat, but uh, her lifeboats were rather large and were not suitable for that kind of work. Um, the, shortly after we arrived on the scene, the uh, helicopter started to arrive and the Laurentian forest was used 
as, um, if you like, a, an aircraft carrier, the uh, helicopters were landing and using the, uh, the decks to store bodies until they were returning to Cork. The problem with the helicopters was that uh, while they were winching, they could take about five bodies on board. Uh, so after five, they would drop the bodies on the deck of the Laurentian Forest. And when they were returning for fuel, they'd um, fill up with as many as they could carry and head back, for, back to Cork. An earlier large-scale disaster was the Fastnet race that ran into serious trouble off the Cork coast. Joe Cairns recalls that emergency. It was probably one of the biggest. I thought up to the recent Air India disaster that it was the biggest. Uh, it was biggest in this sense, that everybody was helpless at this stage. Every one of them were helpless. And it was just a question of... Every frantic effort was made. Now, to give you an example, uh, we'd get a, uh, we, we had so many mayday calls, distress calls. They were coming in non-stop, and we'd direct a craft to proceed to something. But while he'd be proceeding to that particular yacht, he'd already have seen another one, and he'd picked them up. So everybody was helpless, and there was quite a number. In actual fact, the whole, the, the, the whole fleet of, of vessels, and indeed all the yachtsmen, were in danger of being, of being uh, wiped out. Uh, our final task that particular day was to find out who was, who was still sailing rather than who was gone. That was the final task. Uh, on that occasion, there were only 15 lost which regrettably was an awful number, but indeed the number saved too. And I think they have shown their appreciation, as you can see there, from letters of appreciation and indeed many plaudits are there on file. Not all emergencies are on a major scale. Usually it's a climber or a yachtsman or a windsurfer who has got into difficulties. Coxon Jerry McGuinness of the Host Lifeboat has strong views on this subject. Well, I think it's up to the authorities to the authorities to minister the transport and power to stop anybody using a boat who is not capable of using a boat. They go to sea and they never tell anybody where they're going, what time they're due back, and it comes midnight and after midnight and their parents or their family get worried about them and they come along to the lifeboat service and you haven't a clue as to where to start whether you're going north, south, east or west to look for them. They should be made before they leave the harbour, say where they're going, what time and what time they're due back. And then you have an idea where to go look for them if they don't return. In the Air Corps, there are equally strong feelings about those who take such risks. We've noticed that the number of windsurfing incidents, naturally enough, I suppose, with the increase in the sport as a pastime, the number of incidents have has increased. Um, we would hope that... Uh, people will take due care and, and attention when going windsurfing and observe all the normal safety uh, factors that are involved in, in a sport like that. And we would urge people to be responsible. The responsibilities include wearing the correct equipment, the correct safety equipment, and telling people where you're going and when you're due back and have someone on the shoreline or never windsurf alone. What about climbers? Climbers, um, again, they, over the years, they're, 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 there's a, I suppose, a, 
history of people climbing in the country and uh, people will naturally get into trouble. Again, the main people who do get into trouble are people who are not really professional in their approach to the sport. They're people who go off ill-equipped, sometimes wearing a pair of sneakers and jeans and a T-shirt on a nice summer's day down in town, head off to the mountains and find a few hours later that they're freezing cold and uh, the first signs of exposure can very soon be upon them. Very often our rescue resources in the air or on sea are stretched to the utmost by the demands placed upon them in emergency situations. That's why the Air Corps has just acquired a new, bigger and more advanced type of helicopter, the French Dauphine, on which crews are now being trained. Commandant Fergus Warner. The Dauphin will extend our capabilities very significantly. In fact, our capabilities haven't increased since 1963 until the arrival of the Dauphin. Now that the Dauphin is here, and over the next uh, 12 months, very intensive training will be taking place to this aim, uh, we will be able to extend our capabilities to provide a night rescue and uh, hopefully all-weather rescue. We hope to have a dedicated rescue unit, uh, which will be available on a 24-hour basis, night and day, for rescue, marine rescue. Mountain rescue at night is a very, very difficult area. Um, there will always be a need for mountain rescue teams in this area. Uh, but we would see that the capabilities that we now have, or will have very shortly when the Dauphins become operational, will vastly exceed our present capabilities. But you're also entering into another area of technology, aren't you, with these aircraft? Well, that's correct. We we're happily are now equipped with some of the best technology available in the world and this will probably have to see us into the next century. By the next century technology will be of paramount importance in our means of rescue but new developments don't always meet with full approval. For instance what will they mean for the lighthouse keepers? There is a programme of automation, an ongoing programme of automation that uh, the commissioners of Irish Lights and the ship owners hope to have all stations automated and in fact demand by 1997, um, we as a body, the, the lighthouse keepers, are having discussions with the Department of Communications at the moment because um, automation is one thing, um, but to have no manned presence around the coast of Ireland, well, well that would be a, a tragedy in itself. Um, it's, it's necessary to have man, man, uh, manpower because unlike any other country, we've no Coast Guard service, we've no backup service, there's nothing... Um, on the Irish coast except marine rescue coordination uh, who are based in Shannon and the lighthouse keepers who have been doing the work of coast guards, coast watching, weather stations all through the years. So I think automation is one thing in, in say, Great Britain. It's a completely different matter around the Irish coast. So you feel under present circumstances it's essential that you and your men stay in the lighthouses? Oh, I think I think um, the fact that we can if you take the 22 man stations around the coast and you can say that we have been involved <clears throat> in between 150 and 200 cases where we have, we have uh, helped the marine rescue people, where we've helped the lifeboat people, well then the record obviously speaks for itself and in fact we would have correspondence from all these bodies to back that up.
Those who organise our rescue services must make the difficult decision concerning new technology that will carry the services into the next century. But while the pros and cons of the subject are being debated, the daily rescue must go on. To refuse the offer of the lifeboat? Sometimes OK, well, that's fine. You can let us know if anything changes. Thank you very much, Yes.